welcome to Ana Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Ana, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features H2, a doctor born in Myanmar who is currently living in Italy. H2 left Myanmar when she was young and trained as a medical doctor abroad. When the coup happened in February 2021, H2 describes it as a huge tragedy that felt almost like a loved one had died. With medical care workers, doctors and nurses being one of the most targeted groups in the military's brutal crackdown, it has been absolutely devastating to watch as the military hunt down her colleagues. Here, H2 talks about her fear for the future of the healthcare system in Myanmar her advocacy work, and her disappointment with organisations like the UN, whose response she feels has been totally inadequate to the situation in Myanmar. She pleads with international medical organisations to stand in solidarity with their colleagues in Myanmar. She also appeals to Burmese people abroad, especially those who have remained indifferent to the plight of their homeland and its people, to show more solidarity and help in every way they can. Let's start the conversation. H2, thank you for coming on the podcast and talking to us. If you wouldn't mind just maybe introducing yourself a little bit for our listeners so they can get a sense of who you are. Thank you very much, first of all, for inviting me to talk about my country. My name is H2, so I left the country when I was very small. I trained as a doctor abroad and currently I'm living in Italy, helping out the Burmese abroad. Um, very good. So like prior to the coup this year, were you anyway involved in the politics of Myanmar or is this all very new to you this year? Um, I was academically interested in the politics of my country because for me, I, how, how do I say, um, I'm always interested in what was happening in the ethnic areas. I'm a Bama, but I felt that, you know, I, I did live for a brief period of time as well in, in Myanmar. But I felt that as a Bama, we were very privileged and that I, I found that it was much more difficult for, let's say, a Karen or a Kachin to get a passport or uh, to get higher education, to get a job. So for me, it was always of interest to follow some of the politics in my country. Now, I didn't know to what extent some of the politics were in my country. For example, some of the stuff that happened in Rakhine about the internet block, internet uh, blackout, that I hadn't known. But I had been hopeful because um, when uh, Do Aung San Suu Kyi came into power, it wasn't a perfect democracy, but I thought there was some progress being made. And everyone was hopeful, let's say, because when I went back to Myanmar at the time, I had realized what a huge difference because as a person growing up abroad, you are used to seeing certain things like healthcare, uh, education. So when I went back to live in Myanmar, of course, healthcare was terrible, you know, things like things that we take for granted abroad, like paracetamol, you know, getting bandages or even getting a, a, a proper a hospital bed, for example, that was all that was all very much for the Burmese people. It was almost, you know, for the poor people, especially it was almost impossible. Though Aung San Suu Kyi's government came into power, there were certain things, for example, that started changing. And there was more information available. Education was improving. People felt more free to express themselves and uh, some of the Burmese people were able to travel abroad and seek education abroad. It was a little bit easier. So when the military coup happened, it was a big shock for everybody, um, including my parents. 
So I'm just imagining then you obviously being outside of the country when the coup happened. What was that like finding out what was happening that like Aung San Suu Kyi had been arrested, that lots of people had been detained, political leaders, and they were going back under military rule? It almost felt like someone you love had died. But let's say it was a huge tragedy. When the coup happened, uh, my husband had woken me up and said, you know, by the way, had there had been a military coup, it just seemed surreal. Because in one sense, I had expected it because after the 2020 elections, the military had started saying that there was voter fraud, there was electoral fraud. And of course, on the 6th of January, was it 6th of January, there was the Capitol riot in the US. So I had felt that, oh, you know, they could easily take that as an example to stage a coup because they could say, well, it's electoral fraud and then they could take over as, as the coup. But at the same time, I just said, well, it's impossible because they had been slowly trying to improve the country because things had started improving. Myanmar was opening up and I thought the military wouldn't be stupid enough to bring the country back to absolute poverty, abject poverty and corruption. So when it happened, it was absolutely devastating. And all the Burmese people I've spoken to were absolutely shocked and incredibly disappointed. They were very, very sad. So like a lot of us, when we started talking about the coup in the first few weeks, we couldn't even finish a a single sentence without having some tears coming up in our eyes. I'm imagining then like, I mean, we saw like the healthcare workers in Myanmar were the ones that were, I guess, at the heart of the CDM movement. And they really have spearheaded that. How has that been to watch? Because it must be really difficult to see how brutally the military have cracked down on medical care workers and, you know, doctors. But also it must be really hard for doctors to not go to work, you know, of all the jobs, you know, and that's kind of a very dedicated profession to choose not to to go into work. You know, it's it's quite a huge decision. So have you any insights into that from your own perspective as as a doctor? Yeah, absolutely. It's very morally conflicting because on one hand, you know, I can understand why they did it because I haven't actually spoken to anyone directly in Burma, but just from reading it, you know, it's for a doctor not to go to work and not to treat patients. It's morally conflicting. But at the same time, the reason why they did it is because the medical profession is well respected in Myanmar. And during the previous military regimes, the public health care had really gone down well below international standards. So the doctors knew that, that they wouldn't, they couldn't risk anymore to bring health care back to that level again. So that's why they made the decision to go on strike. I actually still remember the first video that uh, I saw of Dr. Teza's son protesting in Mandalay. And actually someone told me that, oh, by the way, that's actually uh, the pro-military supporters trying to play a joke on the people or something like that. Someone had actually, some, a friend of mine had actually said that. And I said, well, it doesn't look like that. It was, it was actually amazing that later on I found out that it's actually Dr. Teza's son who had staged the first protest in Mandalay at the time. Yeah. As a healthcare professional, to see all these, because it's not just doctors and nurses, it's also medical students and nursing students. So we are talking about the current generation of doctors and nurses, and as well as the future generation of doctors and nurses who are being persecuted by the military. And that will have absolutely devastating consequences for the public health care in Myanmar, which had already been fragile from the beginning because it had been also been battered by the COVID pandemic. Some doctors had died, especially, you know, some of the doctors who had actually retired and had gone back to work during the COVID pandemic in Myanmar. They had died. And also, of course, you know about it as well, that in July, we had a third COVID wave in Myanmar that had been the worst COVID wave. 
compared to the first and the second, which had happened under Johnson Suu Kyi's government. And they had managed to control it while the third wave was absolutely disastrous because they had all these mass protests with all these people. And on top of that, when the military staged their coup, the public health care had collapsed. The doctors had gone on strike. But also the military was restricting access. They had occupied hospitals and clinics. They started targeting doctors and nurses. And they had put some doctors, about 800 doctors and nurses on arrest warrants. So these doctors and nurses had had to go into hiding. And even if these doctors are on strike and they didn't go into hospital to work, they had been providing underground clinics, let's just say underground clinics or volunteer clinics. So in a normal situation, in a normal democratic country, these doctors would have been just maybe punished. I mean, given a fine you know, or have been kicked out of work, but they wouldn't have been arrested or killed just for, you know, providing volunteer uh, medical services to the public. So I also know that during the Lion Thaya massacre as well, some doctors actually had to go into hospital to look after the protesters. But for safety reasons, you know, these were not publicized. But yeah, well, it's very, it's very difficult because also in Yangon during the COVID wave, the military soldiers had pretended to be sick civilians and they had called the doctors who were providing volunteer services and they had arrested them. So yeah, it's, it's very concerning. Now we've had statements from various international medical organizations that condemned, you know, they, they, they can do as much as condemn. And maybe some organizations have said that they do not want to get involved in politics by even releasing a state of condemnation. But the problem with that is that when you have your colleagues being persecuted by uh, violently as well, by a military force that is not only uh, restricting civilians to healthcare, but also on top of that, punishing the, the people who provide healthcare, you know, so I think the stand of neutrality in those cases is not really appropriate. I mean, I've been calling as well, and some of my colleagues have been calling for solidarity in the medical organizations, because I think it's important that medical organizations around the world are aware that doctors and nurses in Myanmar are being persecuted. And this will have rather severe grave consequences for the future of a country, because healthcare is one of the pillars of society. And so I've also written an article in the Irish Medical Times as well. But unfortunately, in Ireland, I haven't had much of a response from the medical organizations. That doesn't surprise it, me. <laughs> We've not had very good responses from Ireland all round, especially given that they have a seat on the United Nations Security Council. It has been very disappointing. And I like to take every opportunity I have to call that out in this podcast because I'm from Ireland and I'm really disappointed with the Irish government and their lack of response. But I think you make a really great point about the medical profession, because at times like this, you need that international support. And to see that happening to their colleagues, you know, who are being tortured and killed for helping people, you know, you can't be neutral with something like that. You absolutely have to speak out. And it's not about politics. It's about right and wrong and what's morally right. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you can't say you're neutral when even as a healthcare worker, you are being neutral, okay, by not going to work even look, but still at the same time providing medical service to your patients. But however, the military isn't treating you on the grounds of neutrality because they're coming after you. You know, even if you think about that, the soldiers taking all the trouble of calling these doctors and then arresting them. You can't say you're being neutral anymore because that's not that's not being neutral. They're actually specifically targeting doctors because these doctors are not even out on the streets. 
you know, armed with guns. Now, having said that, they are now, because of the situation, making it impossible for civilians to continue protesting peacefully. Therefore, some, including doctors and nurses, have taken up arms against the military, which, well, I don't know, I can understand them. But yeah, this is a result of inaction from the international community. And it's just the situation getting a bit more extreme. I was going to ask about, because you said you went on, on a march in Parma to, to raise awareness. I was just going to ask what the response was there and, and who was supporting and who, who was present. Was it mostly people with a Burmese connection or is there much awareness in Italy? No, it's not a, it wasn't a march. It was a week long event. We have a community here and we actually have a public Facebook page. It's called Myanmar Community in Italy. So we, we are very lucky in Italy because there are Italian politicians who are genuinely interested in helping Myanmar and they also know Aung San Suu Kyi. So one of them had organized a week long event in Parma because Parma is the cultural city. It's one of the well known cultural cities in Italy. So they had organized an event. I wasn't there. I only joined them at the end of the week, but the first day they had an online conference with doctors from Burma and also the doctors in Parma because in the University of Parma, in the medical school and the medical association in Parma, they actually have had ongoing projects in Burma for neural rehabilitation for patients who've had trauma to the head, who've had a stroke because in Burma, these things are just very minimal or even non-existent. So they had gone over to Myanmar a few times before the coup to start projects there to help to do an exchange of medical doctors and students from Myanmar to Italy. So they knew some of the doctors there. They knew uh, Dr. Zoe So. So they had an online conference. And then the next few days, it was more cultural events. Uh, We also had NUG's Minister of Human Rights talk to us in person and meet up. So it was more to raise awareness, also to give support, to discuss about Myanmar. So it was very, it was a very interesting event. And we are hoping to do more and hopefully get more international response from those events, because we are hoping that by us organizing these events, that maybe perhaps other countries will follow, because it's a huge moral support, not only to the Burmese people back home, but also to the Burmese people abroad, because it's important to always keep Myanmar in the limelight or in the headlines. Otherwise, because it's already been eight months, and as NUG's human rights minister would say, after such a long time, people can get tired, and it's important to keep the movement going forward, to keep the revolution alive, because people can get tired and, you know, people might start forgetting about what's happening back home. How much is it making the news in Italy? Does it, does it make mainstream news headlines? No, unfortunately, not so much. Not as often as we would like, because there's so many things happening as well initially. But but let's say, for example, when there was an amnesty of prisoners, it would make news, but it wouldn't be headline news. It would be in the newspapers, but it wouldn't make the big headlines. But the Armed Forces Day, when they killed over 100 people, that made headline news, for example. So if only something really big happens, it makes headline news. But things that happen in Parma, for example, it wouldn't make into the headline news, but at least then by using that event, we could promote more awareness of it, you know, within Burmese communities, but also within our own social circles. And I'm just thinking about that, like, it's really great that you have some politicians there, because that's whose attention we're always trying to get in terms of helping. 
but it is you're you're right it's going on a long time and I'm thinking about you as a doctor who has probably other responsibilities and like we know because we're involved in Myanmar now as well it takes up so much time so how are you finding the balance there to keep going and fitting this into your life while also maintaining keeping everything else together as well I mean it can't be easy I'm sure it's quite tiring but I actually find also contentment in helping people back in Myanmar because when we live abroad we're able to express ourselves freely we don't have internet blackouts we don't have to run for our lives we don't have to fear arrest so for me I feel that it's my responsibility to help Burmese people back home so yes it's tiring it takes up a lot of time especially in the beginning because I was frantically translating news articles and you know trying to find out as much as possible now I must say I have to sort of take it a little bit easier because you know it does take up a lot of time and I have a family as well but for me I feel it's a responsibility A lot of Burmese people living abroad feel that as well because they know it's much harder for Burmese people back home to be able to keep up with the revolution because they have to worry more about their survival. I don't know if you saw it because it just happened today, but there was a flash protest in Myanmar Plaza in Yangon and the security guards attacked the protesters and they harmed one girl. And there's a lot of footage going around of it, but One of the things that happened as a direct result is most of the shops withdrew from Myanmar Plaza today in protest of what had happened, which I think really shows that even though things are quiet at times, there is a collective support there in the country still. Everyone feels very strongly. Taxi drivers are refusing to drive anyone to Myanmar Plaza. They all drove away from from the shopping center. So I think that when we're on the outside, you know, we have to keep pushing because people don't have the luxury in Myanmar to do that. But when it's called upon, they do step up. And, you know, so today we can see hundreds of people who care, who maybe don't say it every day, but when it matters. But it is hard to find that balance. And I think similarly, you know, we spent a lot of time writing to politicians in the early stages. We realized that was like not the most productive use of our time because it would take months to get a reply. It would be very generic cut and paste reply and all of us would get the same reply. So... <laughs> trying to find other ways that are better, but it is difficult. It is so difficult to get everyone to stay caring and to not get caught up in their own lives. And then information gets harder to come out all the time. I think today in Karani, like all of the internet is shut down there, you know, so we don't know what's happening there right now. So it is a worry, but yeah, we have to find ways definitely to keep going. But I'm also thinking of the doctors there, like we're going to have a whole We're going to have no generation coming through of doctors because nobody's in university right now. Uh, Nobody's getting high school education. So they've killed the ones that are there now. The rest are in hiding or have had to go somewhere else. And we've got no doctors coming through. So where, where does that leave people in the next few years in Myanmar? Well, that's that is a very serious concern. Absolutely. Because actually, when I was talking to one of my colleagues here, he had been to Cambodia. He had been to Cambodia. And when he went there only just for an academic visit, someone had actually told him that because during the Khmer Rouge time, uh, they had, you know, targeted people with education, with higher education. So that included doctors as well. So that meant that, you know, they had wiped out quite a large proportion of doctors. And they had also brought him some strange procedures to practice medicine as well in Cambodia. So, you know, the Cambodian healthcare system was incredibly poor. So if you had something serious, especially the foreigners who lived there, they had, you know, they were wealthier. So they would have to travel to a different ASEAN country. 
to seek medical treatment. So in Myanmar, it hadn't been that bad. But, you know, it is going to be a very similar situation because, as I said, with the COVID pandemic, some of the doctors had contracted COVID and died. That was already a serious loss because Myanmar had also gone through previous military regimes. We also had a lot of our, um, let's say, the brightest ones leaving the country and to study abroad and maybe some would only return. So it's like what they call a brain drain. And now because of the coup, the doctors, like, you know, 800 doctors on arrest warrants, it's not few. And on top of that, they had already killed 29 medical workers, uh, according to the um, organization, they're called Physicians for Human Rights. So 29 healthcare workers have been killed. And uh, on top of that, you have also like medical students, nursing students who cannot attend university. And I've spoken to some of them and they have actually had to change their studies as well because it's impossible, you know, and because also the military is targeting healthcare workers, they feel also safer to change the course of their studies as well. So some of them are second year medical students, for example. So we are going to face a rather grim future in terms of healthcare in Myanmar, especially the longer it takes for Myanmar to go back to democracy, the worse it would get. Why do you think, I mean, I don't know if you know the answer, but why I know, like, we can say the doctors helped to lead some of the protests and they were at the heart of it. But why is there such a, you know, a determination to kill them by the military? You know, it seems like ludicrous, you know, to think that, you know, their target is doctors and nurses. It seems like so strange, but they seem so determined to kill, arrest, imprison as many of those as they can. Why do you think that is? That's actually a very good question. To be honest, I don't really know what they think, but knowing the military, it's more like revenge. It's like, how dare you go against us? You know, I'm not 100% sure. It could be that when the doctors stage the protests, maybe it's easier to find doctors because they would be registered in their working places because they're public health servants. So it was probably easier to look for doctors and hunt them and possibly try to coerce them to go back to work. But I don't know like why they start hunting doctors in general, because especially during the COVID pandemic, you would think that they would give some type of amnesty to the CDM doctors and say, okay, well, we have a serious healthcare crisis here. We let you work despite you going on strike against us. It's a very good question, but knowing the military, they're not up for negotiations. They're cruel. I mean, they don't just target doctors. They also target lawyers uh, who are helping um, protesters who are being arrested. They also target journalists because the journalists are reporting what is actually happening in the country. So, you know, this is very typical of a dictatorship, which, you know, they would target educated individuals because they are a threat because these educated individuals can make decisions and they are they're able to lead the public especially doctors they're well respected so the public would generally follow the leaders and this is what the military doesn't want they don't want these individuals to be leading the people against them this is my theory yeah i mean it's not a a wrong theory i would think Um, it makes sense definitely It just seems crazy. It just, you know, when I say it to people here, I don't think people in the Western world really believe it or like comprehend it because it just sounds so like there's no way they're killing doctors and nurses. I'm like, they are. It's happening. Like and hunting is the word you use. And it's so accurate to what it is. Um, And I'm just thinking in the last week or so, we saw those nine young girls who were volunteer medical workers taken. We saw those pictures that they posted of, man, they're just so young. 
and just it's really shocking and like that's not newsworthy here you know nine girls taken who were volunteer medical workers by a military is not newsworthy i think a lot of the a lot of the problems maybe perhaps of the more developed countries is that people are so used to having a more privileged life that when they hear about these atrocities happening in poorer countries like we can say myanmar is one of them Syria is one of them, as well as Ethiopia, what's happening in Ethiopia or Palestine. I think, you know, when I talk to some of my friends here, their response is, well, you know, these countries, it's always going to happen. You know, to them, I think the idea that they can't comprehend, really. So, you know, things like, you know, medical workers being arrested, they, they would think, well, that's impossible. That must be fake news or something like that, you know. So that that's why I'm trying to raise awareness through my own social media channels and also to talking to people. I'm just saying, you know, this is what's happening. And because I'm a medical doctor as well, people tend to listen to me. But it comes normalized that like you just you just are able to rattle off so many countries that it's almost like a passive acceptance in the West that there's certain countries that bad things happen in. And then human life is just devalued and people don't manage to empathize to the extent that they would if, you know, it was their doctor or, or their nurse. And I think because Myanmar has had that history of, of turmoil and that is what it is famous for, for people who've never been there, who've never visited. And I think the thing that, I mean, obviously it's your home country. For me and Suzanne, we live there and it's just really hard to kind of grasp when you know how amazing it is and you know people from there and that they have to deal with this as a reality and trying to kind of like translate that to people in their you know the everyday drudgery of their lives that you know you have some power here you have some awareness that you could try and make a difference it's really quite a challenge to be able to make humans realize and empathize and not just see it as another tragedy on the news that's far removed from their own reality uh, just if more people could do it maybe things like this wouldn't happen so regularly. Not just the foreigners or let's say non-Burmese people who also have this view. You also have a lot of Burmese people because I'm a Burmese person living abroad. And then you have Burmese people who had grown up abroad and they're completely not interested in what's happening in Burma because I think the majority of people have this attitude where, well, it doesn't affect me. So why should I care? And that's it's a very harsh way to put it, but I think a lot of people do have that mentality and it's not just confined to Western countries, you know? Yeah, and I often worry that actually if we look a little closer around the world, we should be getting worried because this is happening far more frequently and it's getting closer and closer to people's own countries all the time. So, you know, I think we can see it even in, in Europe, you know, there there's countries that are very questionable at the minute in terms of human rights. So not talking about the country that uh, hijacked the Ryanair flight, are you? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's a typical example of, you know, how, how things are going. And I just wish, yeah, I think if people just kind of stood up a little bit more for these countries, but also our politicians have a lot of, you know, responsibility here, like and the UN and, and these huge organizations. Like I Googled today as it happened, how much it costs to operate the UN because it was bothering me. And 50 billion to operate the UN. Yeah, I think that's how much paper costs for them to print out all these statements. I think it costs 50 billion, you know. 
it's just for me it's so shocking I mean I would have again like I saw a very powerful post the other day on Twitter where someone was saying you know I used to teach my students about the UN and now I'm just so ashamed because our lives are so cheap and I thought that was so powerful because the same like I mean I used to teach model United Nations like now I'm just like so disappointed in it as an institution now that I see how inactive it is and how unhelpful when real stuff actually happens. That's been eye-opening this year. And when I look today that it costs 50 billion. It's absolutely disgraceful, you know, because like you asked me if I had been following the politics of my country before the coup happened. In fact, when one of the things when I saw about United Nations, I had studied about it and people had said to me, you know, be careful because, you know, in the past, all these atrocities have happened and they haven't done anything. But I had been hopeful. So I had studied some the famous resolution 2467 or 13, whatever. And I said, well, hopefully, you know, you know, if I, you know, keep sending them messages to say you have to do something, this obviously this crime applies to this resolution. But as the months passed on and one statement after another, and now knowing that also you have also what the five permanent members who have veto power and, you know, the United Nations, you have what over 193 countries as members. And then you have five countries, big countries who have strong economic power, also military power. And the UN Security Council is actually one of the most powerful councils in the United Nations. And they're totally run by these three countries of which you have adversaries, literally, you know, against each other. They just, you know, block China and Russia block the resolution on, on Myanmar. But you can also similarly say as well that the U.S. blocks resolutions on Palestine. So, you know, it, this is not going to go anywhere. So that's why they're completely non-functional because, you know, OK, you know, as my husband said, well, the whole point of the U.N. was that we wouldn't have, you know, the world wars that happened before. but at the same time, it's an international organization. And when you have these horrible atrocities happening around the world, for example, like Ethiopia, I mean, why would any of the permanent members not want to put a resolution on Ethiopia and, you know, try to resolve the crimes against humanity, which are ongoing there? You know, I don't know. Like, for me, it seems like they're just not interested anymore in keeping world peace. They're only looking out for their own personal interests. And it's very disappointing because, you know, that means that the dictators out there or would be dictators out there now feel that, okay, the United Nations have no power or they're not interested. So they, they can just go ahead and continue, you know, staging military coups like what we saw in Sudan, you know, and also, of course, what's going on at the Polish Belarusian border. You know, that's what happens when you have like a very strong international, supposedly strong international organization like the UN unable to do any effective action to stop these crimes. Yeah, I agree. And there's this whole story going on there as well. I don't know if you've been following it where there's like, you know, UN whistleblower you know, have exposed that the UN were handing the name of dissidents to the Chinese government and all sorts of things. So there's so much corruption within that system, no doubt. So it's definitely a failed system, but it's just where does that leave all of the people of Myanmar and the people of Sudan and all of these countries that need help? We just need more people like us, just everyday people to do something, however small. There's billions of us. And if everyone, you know, stands up for what's right, eventually the power of the people will be the difference than these organizations. But uh, it's much, much easier said than done, unfortunately. Yes, 
unfortunately, that's true as well. But I think people in Myanmar have already realized that, you know, it was absolutely heartbreaking when you see all these young, hopeful people. Obviously, when you're young, you're very hopeful, you're optimistic, you don't, you know, you expect so much, you know, from from these international organizations. And it was absolutely heartbreaking to see all those those placards reading, how many dead bodies would it take for the UN to take action? But I think at this stage now, even people have realized that the UN will not do anything. Even the protesters in Sudan have realized the Sudanese protesters are falling. And what's happening in Sudan, the Myanmar protesters are following. So there is some sort of solidarity as well amongst the people. And they have realized that they can no longer rely on these international organizations to help out. So that's why we're also seeing you know, these various types of resistance against the military in Myanmar, for example, the the armed resistance. Now, a lot of criticism has been given to the armed resistance saying, you know, it's better for negotiations, go on down the political route, go down the diplomacy route. But, you know, the problem is that the military was never up for negotiations. Like even now in Rakhine State or Arakhine State, it's unsure, you know, what, what will happen there because they have a ceasefire. But will the military respect the ceasefire? I recently read in an article in the Al Jazeera Times that the Arakan army has been increasing their influence in the administrative areas as well as judicial courts in Arakan state. So they have about two thirds of control over that state now. And even though the military has given a ceasefire, they will not be happy to let go of Rakhine State or Arakan State. So, you know, the military has never been able to follow up on their promises. You know, this also happened after Myanmar's independence from the British, uh, where they were supposed to have a treaty between the different ethnic groups and the military did not follow through with their promises. So the military is known for that. Not only that, from the healthcare perspective, they had been giving these vaccinations. They were giving vaccinations. There was a charity worker. He had gone in for his vaccinations and they arrested him. You know, because he had been providing volunteer medical service, but it was like a neutral charity worker. He was not affiliated with any political groups. That That's why you can't trust the military with anything, because they just target any any old person, you know. There are things that the international community needs to do and things like tougher sanctions. And that's something the EU absolutely should be doing. It's been months now since we've had anything on sanctions. And I'm not even sure the sanctions that are already there are even being enforced fully. So yeah, pressure is definitely needed to cut off their money. You know, as long as they keep getting billions and billions of US dollars, you know, they're going to be unstoppable. And it's just going to be so much debt just awful it needs to happen so yeah i mean i'm glad that you have some politicians on your side in italy i mean that's promising in terms of the eu but it's not it's not enough unfortunately i'm just i'm thinking in terms of covid now because i'm just seeing here in ireland we're entering another wave which seems to be a pretty you know bad one in terms of our numbers are going up really significantly and we've got a 90 percent vaccination rate so that worries me when i think of myanmar you know, and the military have brought in all kinds of ridiculous laws that you can't wear a mask in public, <laughs> you know, which is like a life-saving thing with a COVID pandemic. Does that worry you with Myanmar, like their lack of vaccines being ruled by a military, no healthcare system operating at the moment, that if they get another bad wave of COVID, what that would mean, it would devastate the country, I think. Yeah, obviously it would be catastrophic, but at the same time, 
I mean, I don't know what the COVID situation in Myanmar, that is because of the lack of statistics, you know, in the mainland Myanmar, especially, which is under military rule. On the other hand, I know that up in Kachin state under the KIO, I know that they've had an increase of cases up there, but there have been no fatalities or hospitalizations as far as I'm aware of, but they do have an increase in cases up there. Yeah, but now with the military, I have I have no idea. I have no idea why they say they can't wear face masks in public. I think that is because they want to identify some of the protesters, but at the same time, they're putting on a blanket ban towards all the civilians. And this is, this is a stupid move, but then, you know, anything stupid that the military does I'm not shocked anymore because that, that's what they are. I know that in Mon State as well, they're telling motorcyclists not to wear a helmet. You know, these are the things that you can't even like, you think, oh, is this an April Fool's joke or something like that? Because, you know, like a normal, a normal intelligent person would not tell people to do things like that. But this is the Burmese military. So it, there'll be more surprises along the way as well with all the stupidity that they have in store. What do you think will be the difference or is the difference maybe this time? Like, you know, we're 10 months in. And the people are still going strong. You know, they haven't given up. The civil disobedience movement is still going rather strong. The PDFs are building and building. I mean, I know we saw last week the raids in Yangon and it was a big blow to PDFs. But when I saw all the photographs, I was like, wow, they had that much weapons. <laughs> like I was, that was my reaction. I couldn't believe that they had managed to get that kind of weaponry in this short period of time into a major city in Myanmar. So these movements must be moving big style in the country. So do you think it's going to be this armed revolution, the CDM? What What's going to be the thing that breaks this, do you think? I think there is a resistance against the military in all different types of forms. So CDM is one of the peaceful forms of resistance. And yeah, it, it would be a, a, the different forms of resistance against the military. So for the CDM people who are not going to work, they have no salary and they are getting into economic difficulties. There's also another tactic being used to break down the military, which is the deflections as well, which is steadily increasing, but not perhaps enough yet to break up the, the military. And you also have the armed resistance, which seem to be the strongest type of resistance. Of course, some people will say also it's the CDM that really has helped the military not able to consolidate power. So in the long run, I mean, I hope that we will be able to bring the military down before the end of next year. Some people say it may take many more years. I hope not because, you know, we have also thousands of people who are being displaced from their homes. These are also farmers who are unable to cultivate on their lands. So, you know, on top of these people being displaced from their homes and unable to get food because also the military is blocking humanitarian aid to these internally displaced people. We also have farmers who are unable to grow food for the country. So that's why it can't take so long. And that's why we're trying to break up the military or bring down the military as much as possible. But what the international community can help is to help speed up that process. And that is by sanctioning, cutting off their access to money to buy more weapons. You know, a global arms embargo would be incredibly useful as well, because there are countries which may have abstained from voting in the United uh, Nations General Assembly because during the they had voted for a recommendation to not import military weapons into Myanmar. But that's actually a choice. So. Russia and India, for example, had imported already weapons into Myanmar military. So these things will have to be stopped because if the military has no weapons to kill people, if the military has no money to buy more weapons, 
that would definitely help bring the military down, even for them to be pushed to have negotiations as well. But, you know, negotiations, I think, you know, we're kind of well past that because it's impossible. You know, the other thing that the NUG is also trying to work on is for the Myanmar generals to be brought to a court of justice, to an international court of justice. So these are the things that the international community can help us with. Yeah, definitely. Um, And they need to, you know, they need to. I'm just thinking as well, when you're just mentioning so many people displaced and there's like, there's people who are 80 years of age who are in the jungle out of their home and they're dying, hiding from the military, you know, like what a tragedy for that to be how your life ends, you know, and, and it is happening to so many people. And yeah, they, they keep getting money and, you know, they can fly a plane over, they can drop whatever they want down. Like, you know, all of this is allowed to happen because the international community is not acting to stop it and it's just really really frustrating and I think everybody needs to put pressure on everywhere they are and I think it's really uplifting to know that there's like a lot of Burmese people in Italy for example who are speaking out like you and are pushing politicians and helping and we just need more and more of that to be happening all around the world and we need to convince people to care (laughs) you know that's what you guys are doing in Italy you're convincing the politicians and the people there to care about Myanmar. And then once you have Myanmar in your heart, you kind of want to help. It's very hard not to. <laughs> so we just have to keep pushing. But it's it's desperately sad. It's desperately sad that the people who have the power to do more are not doing more. And I even think sanctions are very, even symbolically, a huge thing like Myanmar oil and gas to be sanctioned. That would have such a like devastating impact on their own selves like the military within I could imagine there would be like fractions breaking off if something big like that were to happen because we've never seen it done you know and that would even cause more upset within their own institution which can only help with defections and a breaking away of some top generals which is what we kind of need to happen I think as well. Yeah absolutely the top generals are staying in power not only because it's very difficult because they have become very wealthy because of the corruption And that is also through these oil and gas companies that they run. And the defections in the lower ranking soldiers, as far as I know, they're happening because the soldiers, you know, have a a conflicting moral conscience because they feel that when they entered the army, it was not to shoot unarmed protesters or unarmed civilians. So a lot of them are leaving despite, you know, a risk to their lives or their family. But you also have the military institution. You know, you have these generals who are very, very wealthy at the top. And, you know, the lifestyle that they have is unbelievable. Their children, their wives, they have this lifestyle that for a normal Burmese person, it's just unimaginable. And yet you have these lower ranking soldiers who are paid a very meager salary. And that's why some people have said that Perhaps that's why they're robbing private property, not because also they feel like, okay, you know, I'm a soldier, I can get away with this, but also because they don't, they, they don't treat their own soldiers very well. Yeah, no, it's true. We, we did speak to someone recently about the soldiers and defections. And, you know, he did talk about the kind of how low down the ranking they are and how horrible their life is, really. But they don't know how to get out. So that's why the defections and trying to spread that message to the soldiers is so important so that they get to know there's a way out. You know, there, there are these groups that support soldiers to get out, give them that yeah. option. But yeah, it is. It's just so sad that this is what's happening. And it's so frustrating because, you know, I, I'd like to be at the point where we're talking to a guest and sanctions have happened. 
you know, we're not still talking about the same things, but like we often find ourselves still talking about these things because they haven't happened yet. Very frustrating. Very, very frustrating. And that all of these, you know, companies are just getting richer and richer and richer and everyone else is just dying for their money. So yeah, it's, it is shameful. And, you know, we're learning a lot too. We're like having a lot of things that now because of this. And I know a lot of other people are, we, we're seeing people go out of business. Like in Myanmar, we've seen some really powerful boycotts of products. And maybe we need to see that on a more international scale with some of these big companies to, to really send a message loud and clear. Cause that's the only way they will really listen is when you harm their money. And I'm just, I'm just thinking about Thailand there. I mean, obviously there's a, there's a better general standard of living in the country, but you still have that big divide with the incredibly wealthy. And in terms of protesting, cause I know there's a lot of Myanmar people that have migrated for work to Thailand, but Thailand's brutal with protests, isn't it? They use force to repress them. So we're in a, in a position of a massive privilege that we can do these protests and, and speak freely and, and make these movements. But perhaps one of the most powerful countries in terms of sanctions, the people don't necessarily have that same amount of power or incentive. Well, the Thai government was formed after a military coup as well. So they would obviously use the same type of methods to suppress the people. But in generally speaking, I think a lot of the countries in the ASEAN, they are authoritarian regimes. So they use similar methods to crush political dissent, like even in the Philippines, which is supposed to be a democracy. You also see, you know, political opponents of the current government or current president being either thrown into prison or being targeted. So, you know, the thing is that that's why the people taking more action, taking more of the power back into their hands is probably more important because, you know, in the beginning, we did the peaceful protests. And no help arrived from the international community. We've had sanctions, but I think also let's just say that the sanctions from the US, the EU and the UK are helpful. But we also have countries like China, Russia, Australia, Singapore, which have not put sanctions on the Burmese generals. And they have actually more economic leverage over the Burmese generals. So therefore, that's why the people have taken the matter into their own hands to put up an armed resistance, have to put up the civil disobedience movement to try to increase defections within the army. Yeah, they've taken the matter in their own hands. But, you know, the way they had shot the, the protesters in Thailand, it, it doesn't surprise me at all because they are pretty much birds of the same feather. I hope like when the people win that there's no room for some of these people in Myanmar's future, some of these companies that they are no longer welcome to do business in Myanmar. And some of these people who have benefited like countries like Singapore, Australia and Thailand who are not speaking out, maybe I hope the next government, you know, remembers this when, if and when hopefully they win, because there should be consequences for those who didn't stand with the people. I'm sure they'll always come to scramble at some point when they realize, oops, I think we backed the wrong side. <laughs> we might see a shift, but it is disappointing. I think those countries in general anyway, if the democratic government took over, they would change sides. They're like chameleons. So they would just switch sides like the way China switched sides so easily. First of all, they were courting the NLD. And now when the military junta came into power, they are still, you know, they are sitting on the fence. It doesn't matter what kind of political opinions the political party has. As long as they do continue doing business with China, that's all that's all they're interested in. So, yeah, it's true that, you know, in the future, it would be ideal to, you know, sort of say, well, at the time when we needed you, you weren't there for us. But I think that's very difficult because Burma is surrounded by 
all these countries, as we know, who respect human rights. And that's the sarcastic remark. <laughs> so it's, it'll be, it'll be difficult not to not have some type of diplomacy with them. But this is like an unfortunate geographical position that Myanmar has at the moment. Yeah, I think for me, for the, I mean, I've only spent a very brief amount of time in Singapore and slightly more in Thailand, but I can't say that, you know, I've been at to remote places. But the, the general standard of living in terms of those countries in comparison to more remote areas in Myanmar, just it seems like those crippling regimes in terms of freedom of speech and things haven't had the same kind of impact on the general standard of living, I guess, the infrastructure. I mean, because Thailand, obviously, it's so dependent on tourism, which has, has brought a lot of money into the country. I noticed the military, the Myanmar military, uh, looking to open up to tourists in, in 20, in, in next year, which is just an insane concept to me. But I guess my point is, I'm trying to make a point here, the, the way that with the previous history of military not investing money back into the country has had a, an impact on the infrastructure that's very visible in Myanmar. And this is obviously just going to set it back even further. And the kind of outlets that other countries have to build their economies up, like Thailand with the tourism and Singapore with its investments, there's not even those possibilities from this military regime. I mean, I was thinking as well when you were saying that, you know, the problem with Myanmar, the Thai government was formed after a military coup. But yet their country is not as shattered, let's just say, by subsequent uh, military regimes as the way Myanmar was. The state of Myanmar, we used to be called the rice bowl of Asia and now we're the begging bowl of Asia, as my dad would put it. That's because of the type of military regimes that we've had, because we haven't been fortunate at all. In Indonesia as well, they've had a military dictatorship as well under Suharto for 30 years. But it was just the way these military dictatorships had ruled the country, because some are not as brutal or as perhaps not as stupid as the Burmese military regime. They had allowed some economic investment. They had allowed more development of the country. You know, even if you look at Brunei, which is an absolute monarchy, it's a well-developed country. You know, the, the king looks after his people very well, even though he is like, I don't know, 80 something years old and he's been in power for a very long time. But it's just the way the different authoritarian regimes have ruled their country. In Myanmar's case, uh, this is the third military coup and we've had quite fanatical overly superstitious generals ruling the country. I think after General Nguyen, let's say the country started going down the, the toilet because he was very suspicious of foreign influence. He was an ethno-nationalist. So the country got cut off. And that's why under General Tanshwe, they realized that, you know, we can't keep cutting off from the rest of the world because the rest of the world had moved on and Myanmar had stayed very much in the past. We were one of the, you know, in terms of education, healthcare, infrastructure was very bad. So that's why they started opening up the country when they realized that it's time to move forward. But then General Mayanhain decided to bring the country back by 20 years. You know, the economy has crashed. That was because he wanted to stay in power. So it's just it's just it's just very unfortunate. We ha we've had really unfortunate military regimes. And, you know, that's why the people of Myanmar really want to make sure that the country doesn't go back under a military regime. That's why we have such a strong reserve, because we have these young people who've experienced a very short term democracy where it wasn't a perfect democracy, but it was much better than it was before. And they became more educated. They understand more about human rights. They understand more about democracy. They understand more about, you know, freedom of expressions. 
they grew up hearing the horrible stories, you know, even myself, you know, listening to my parents, hearing what they have to go through. Therefore, the young generation, we don't want to bring our country back to that. And that's why we're fighting so fiercely against the military regime. H2, is there anything that we didn't mention that you would like to mention? Last thing you wanted to say or anything else? I think we've talked about the healthcare workers that, you know, international medical organizations should stand in solidarity with their colleagues. And, you know, the question of staying neutral is not applicable anymore in Myanmar's case because we're going to have a country whose public health care or health care, you know, is going to be in a very serious condition in the future. The other thing possibly that I would like to talk about, I don't know how effective it is, is that we have a lot of Burmese people abroad. And for me, it has been slightly disappointing that not all the Burmese are united. There are Burmese people like me who grew up abroad, and even though I know they didn't grow up in the country, it would be nice to see them more interested in what's happening in the country that they have, they're born or their parents are born. It wouldn't be nice to have their solidarity in that because at the moment I'm working with Burmese people who had to leave the country as refugees or they had to leave the country for work. You know, and not all of them, most of them have had the privilege to go to a foreign university and be educated abroad. So the Burmese people who grew up abroad, they have a special advantage over the Burmese people who had to leave their country. Maybe they have taken up foreign citizenship or they have had foreign educations. You know, they can do a lot more, I think, to help the Burmese people back home or even in their own Burmese communities. So it would be nice to see them help out a lot more. And I know a lot of them are already doing that, but I just don't see enough solidarity at the moment in my own social circle. And then, of course, as the minister, Aung Myung Min, had said, it is after so many months of the revolution ongoing, it is important to keep the flame still burning for the revolution and that we continue fighting for those who are unable to you know, fight as much as us it should be the responsibility as well of the Burmese people abroad to, you know, keep the revolution alive so that the Burmese people in Myanmar can survive. Yeah, I think that's so important as well. And you're right, because I know numerous Burmese people abroad who are not active at all. So it does exist, even though there's some who are doing the work of 20 people, at least making up for that. But um the thing is, it doesn't matter if you support NLG. It doesn't matter if you you don't support the PDFs. It doesn't matter your political opinions. That doesn't matter. Like This is just a matter of helping people who are being mercilessly killed by an evil military. And that's just a matter of right thing versus wrong thing. And we all should be acting. And we shouldn't be making it political. We shouldn't be making it about ourselves. And we need to see the bigger picture. We need to think of 54 million people, not one political party or one person, you know, and we just have to put all of those innocent people at the front of our minds and, and put everything else aside and just do what's right as a fellow human, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, I'm not doing this because I support one political party after another. For me, it's because I feel that the young generation back home are giving up their lives, their future to achieve democracy of true democracy that sees all the ethnic people in Myanmar enjoy the same equal rights as the Burma. So, for me, that was a very strong motivation to help the, the Burmese people. Oh, you're doing great work. And I know that whenever we talk to people in the country, they always say like it's such a lift when they hear people like you on the outside. 
it gives them such a boost. Like it, it really helps them to know there's people outside who are doing stuff and who care. So it, it means a lot when they hear this, you know, and they tell us that all the time. So, it, you know, you're doing a lot of helpful stuff, but also it's it, it's important for them to know that you're out there, you exist. You're so far away from them in Italy, but you have not forgotten them and you are fighting hard for them. It's good for them to know that. Good for us to know too. <laughs> well, I'm very proud of my people, especially the young generation. You know, when the Rohingya genocide happened, you know, it was absolutely horrific. But I see that the young people nowadays, you know, when the Rohingya genocide happened as well, there were a lot of Burmese people that I had to argue with because they were, let's say, you know, perhaps saying that, oh, this is all fake news. This is what happened. And they were completely, you know, unaware of the truth. But, you know, seeing the young generation now, how much more open minded they are, it gives me quite such a boost. And it's such a pity that the military is targeting these young people. You know, and I'm very proud of the young people of Myanmar because they are really risking so much to bring the military down. The people in Myanmar should know that there are lots of Burmese people abroad who are very determined to help them and they will do as much as possible to help them back home. Thank you for listening to Arnar Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at Arnar Podcast, spelled A-H-N-A-H. Please like, follow and subscribe. Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.